Amen. How many of you brought your Bible? Will you hold up the Bible all over the building this morning? I want to ask you, if you will, to take the Bible, your Bible this morning, and open it to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 16 this morning, page number 1098, if you have an old Schofield Bible. Or if you don't, if you'll just find the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, go over a couple of books, you're going to run into the Gospel of Luke, again, chapter 16, and we'll begin reading in this text in just a moment. I'll ask you, leave your Bibles open and follow me along here today. While you're finding your place there, don't forget our service this afternoon at 5.30. I hope you'll be back for the service tonight. Of course, prayer room, and Brother Zach mentioned this, about 5.05, and then the service tonight. Hope you'll pray and ask the Lord to bless us and then pray for a good service in God's house tonight. All right? Luke chapter 16. If you're there, would you say amen? Thank you so much. Let's look up on the screen this morning. I want to tell you about this place. Maybe some of you have been there. You've traveled out west before. But this place upon the screen is known as Milner Pass. M-I-L-N-E-R, Milner Pass. The place that you're looking at upon the screen this morning is called by some the Continental Divide. Others call this same place the Great Divide. Geologists call that place there the backbone of the continent. Because not only is this the place in the Rocky Mountains where they reach their highest peak, but this place, Milner Pass, is what also separates the rivers and the streams that flow eastward into the Atlantic Ocean from those that flow westward into the Pacific Ocean. This portion of the Continental Divide in the United States is about 3,000 miles long, and it extends from Glacier Park in the state of Montana all the way down to the southeast border of New Mexico. But here is a fascinating meteorological fact about this Milner Pass. If a drop of water falls on this pass, and it falls on the west side of the Continental Divide, it, 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 it eventually will flow and go toward the west until it winds up in the Pacific Ocean. That's amazing. But if a drop of water falls on the eastern side of that particular place right there, it will continue to flow until it reaches the Mississippi Valley, down into the Mississippi River, which dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico and eventually winds up in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, what's so amazing about all that is this, to think about those two drops of water who start out at virtually the same place, and yet they wind up oceans apart. You know, people are a lot like that, aren't they? There are people who come from the same kind of a background with the same opportunities. Many have the same uh, genes and chromosomes, you know, brothers and sisters, and yet when they die, they wind up worlds apart and they never, ever see each other again. Well, this morning in this text in Luke chapter 16, we read a story, a true story that Jesus told one time, and it really, in reality, what this story does, it gives us a look at the other side of the grave. For in this story, the Lord Jesus pulls back the curtain, the veil of, etern of eternity, and gives us a look into the great unseen world. And among the many lessons that we learn from this story, it's this. What happens to people 
after they die. Now, I know there are some people who say, you know, when you die, you die like a dog or an animal that's been hit by a car on the side of the road, and that's it. I mean, there's nothing more. Don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die, and it's all over with. There's nothing else to it. But you know, that's not the message of the Bible. The Word of God teaches us that there is a life on the other side of the grave. Or may I say it like this, there is an eternal life after this temporal life is over. So what I want to do this morning, if I may quickly, I want to stop and just read the story. Then I want to go back and make three very simple thoughts or points from this story. Look at the Gospel of Luke now, chapter 16 and verse number 19. Now let me tell you, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21 and 22 are about life on this side of the grave. But then as we hit verse 23, the scene changes dramatically because now we're in life on the other side of the grave. So let's read about these two men and their life on this side of the grave. Look at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gates his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now earthly life is over. But now the veil is pulled back in verse 23, and we see what happens on the other side of death. Look at verse 23. And in hell he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, the rich man cried, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all of this, between us, uh, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, the rich man said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, send Lazarus, back to my father's house, five, five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Now let's stop there. What he's saying is they have the old, old story. They have the gospel story. They have the word of God. Let them, verse 30, uh, verse 29, let them hear them. And the rich man said, Nay, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, if somebody could just go back and give them a personal testimony of how things really are on the other side of the grave. Oh, they'll believe it and they'll repent. Look at verse 31. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they will not believe the Bible, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Now in our text this morning, we are introduced to two different men. 
I might say men who are divided as, as divided as those two drops of rain that I talked about just a moment ago. These men were as divided as day is from night, as, as light is from dark, as cold is from hot, and as wet is from dry. They were divided by their position. One of these men was very wealthy. One was a prince, no doubt. The other a pauper. They were divided by their possessions. One had everything, and one had nothing. One man had everything that money could buy, while the other man had everything that money couldn't buy. But these men were divided by their passion. One of these men is clearly evident from this story. He was in love with gold, while the other man was in love with God. Believe me when I tell you, that one division made all the difference in the world. These two men were different. They were divided. And what I'd like to do this morning is just briefly pick up on this division and preach a little bit about these two men and what happened to them after death. First of all, number one, in verse 19, 20, 21, and 22, we get a glimpse of their life. And we come to learn that these men were divided by their decision. They were divided by their decision. Now, in life, as we look at these first four verses, these opening verses of this text, the outside, the difference between these two men is very obvious from what we're told about their lives. One of these men was very rich. We're told that he dressed in purple, the color of royalty, made out of a very expensive type of fabric of that day. He was, he was no doubt decked out in the finest that money could buy. We're also told that he fared sumptuously. That simply means that he lived it up every day. He had a banquet every meal. No doubt his menu consisted of prime rib for breakfast, lobster for lunch, and T-bone steak for supper. He, he, uh, he lived in luxury. He wallowed in wealth. He relished in riches. If this man were alive today, he no doubt would be on the cover issue of Forbes magazine. He was a man who had everything that money could buy. But then we're introduced to another man in this story. His name is Lazarus. He was so poor he couldn't even pay attention. He had nothing to eat or to drink. And if all that wasn't bad enough, he didn't know where his next morsel of meal was coming from. He was also very sick. We're told in verse number 20 that he was laid at the gate of this rich man. Evidently, he was so weak, so anemic, so emaciated that he couldn't even walk. He was laid at the gate of this rich man, very sick. We're also told in verse number uh, 21 that the dogs came and licked his sores. No doubt he was just one big running sore from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. Many believe this man had leprosy and he was brought and he was laid at the gate of this rich man. He had no money for food, let alone doctors or medicine. He was as poor as the other man was rich. But can I say that's not the greatest thing that divided these two men. No, sir. The major division between these two men is not that one was filthy rich and the other was filthy poor. The major, in, uh, the, the major division in these two men's life was not with what you could see. It was, what, uh, it was with what you couldn't see. It was not what they possessed 
But maybe I ought to say it was what possessed them. Or maybe I should say it was who possessed them. You see, this rich man had everything except God, while the poor man, the, uh, the, the, the Lazarus, had nothing but God, and he was saved. Now let me stop and say this. We are left, it is very clearly obvious to us, that the poor man was a saved man, and the rich man was a lost man. Now that's very obvious to us in this story. I say that on the basis of two things that are told in this story. First of all, when it comes to the poor man, in verse number 22, we're told that the angels came and ministered unto him. Now, the one thing we know about angels are they're created beings, and the Bible said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 4 that these angels are sent forth they are ministering spirits, and they're sent forth to minister to those who are the heirs of, say it with me, they're the heirs of salvation. Now, we're told that the angels came and took this man, and then we read a verse like that. That leads me to believe that this poor man was a saved man. He was right with God. Somewhere along uh, the journey of his life, he had been introduced to Jesus. Maybe he had heard how he had cleansed the leper, or maybe he had heard how he had given sight to the blind. But somewhere along the journey of this lost man, or this poor man's life, he had made the decision to receive Jesus Christ. He had put his faith and his trust in the Lord as the Messiah, the Savior sent from God. Lazarus was a saved man. By the way, by the way, look up the name Lazarus and you'll find that the name Lazarus simply means this, in God I trust. You know, that's a good way to get saved, isn't it? Put your trust in God. Put your faith in God. Lazarus was no doubt a saved man. But then we're not left to doubt that the rich man was a lost man. Now, the reason I say that is over in verse number 30, we're told that he requests to send Lazarus back. Boy, if they could just see something supernatural, if they could just see a miracle performed, if they could just hear the testimony of somebody that had been there, they will repent. He said, oh yeah, if they'll hear, they'll repent, indicating to us that he had not repented. That leads me to say that the rich man was a lost man. Now, please listen to what I'm about to say. The rich man was not lost because he would not give the poor man some bread. The rich man was lost because he had never received the bread of life for himself. The rich man was not lost and wound up in hell because he was a rich man. You know, in our culture today, it seems like people are looked down upon who are wealthy, who possess things. They're looked down upon in our culture today. Uh, they almost, our government has made people to believe that we ought to level the playing field. We ought to bring the rich down and bring the poor up by distributing the wealth of the rich among the poverty of the poor. But I want to tell you something. I've read the Bible through time and time and time again, and I've never read where God placed a penalty on those who were prosperous, and I've never read where God placed a a premium on those who are in poverty. Hey, there's no vice. There's no vice in being rich. There's no virtue in being poor. I'll just remind you that some of the best people in our Bible were rich people. Job was the Ben Cartwright of the Old Testament. He was a rich man, yet he loved God. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament and Barnabas were both rich men, and yet they loved God. No, sir, this boy didn't die and go to hell because 
because he was rich, he died and went to hell because he did not receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. May I remind all of us in this room, people don't die and go to hell simply because they curse. People don't die and go to hell simply because they look at dirty magazines or drink liquor or smoke dope. People don't die and go to hell because they live together without the benefit of marriage. I'll tell you, people die and go to hell because they do not receive Jesus Christ as the personal Savior and Lord and God of their life. Somewhere along the way of the journey of his life, this poor man had understood his lost condition and his need for the Savior and he put his faith and his trust in Jesus and somewhere along the journey of his life this rich man had rejected his need for God. They were divided by their decision. Maybe this is a good point for me to stop in the message this morning and ask you have you ever decided to follow Jesus. Have you ever decided to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and God of your life? Let me tell you something, friend. You say, preach, I know what you're talking about. I joined the church years ago. No, sir, 10,000 times no. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm not talking about getting baptized or turning over a new leaf or trying to do the best you can or you're good outweighing your bad. Friend, all that may sound good, but it's unbiblical. The only way to be saved is by trusting Jesus as your Savior. And then Everybody needs the Savior this morning. They were divided by their decision. That leads me to make a second, second statement from this text. Not only were they divided by their decision, they were divided in their death. Now, if you look at verse number 22, something happens to both of them. We're told that the beggar died. And we're also told in verse 22 that the rich man also died. Now, unlike in life when they had nothing in common, at the end of life they both had one thing in common, and that is they both died. You know, the Bible said in Proverbs 22 in verse number 2, the Bible says the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. You know, when it comes to Calvary, the ground is level. There's no big eyes or little U's in the sight of God when it comes to Calvary. But can I say this? When it comes to death, there's no big eyes or little U's. The rich die just like the poor die. The famous die just like the unfamous die. Truth of the matter is, when it comes to death, no matter how rich you are or no matter how poor you are, we all stand on common ground when it comes to death. Can I say this? When it comes to death and the dying, the poor man's poverty nor the rich man's plenty could prevent them from dying. You know, everybody in this room has an appointment with death some of these days. And regardless of your financial standing, regardless of your social status, regardless of what kind of neighborhood you live in or what uh, kind of car you may drive, regardless of what kind of position you may hold in the company in which you are employed, I'm here to tell you, some of these days, every last one of us in this room are going to be dead. In fact, I venture to say, if somehow, 100 years from today, June, 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 the 13th, 100 years from today, 3,021, if we were all to purpose to meet back in here, June the 13th, 3,021, can I tell you something? Nobody would meet back here. You know why? We all have an appointment with death.
death. The latest statistics out on the subject of death is one out of every one are going to die. The Bible said it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. The Bible said that we are all as water spilt upon the ground. The Bible said that death is like a, our life is like a vapor that appear for a little time and then vanisheth away. I'm just here to tell you friend we all someday are going to have to die regardless of where you're at in your standing of life. We must die and face God someday. The Bible said they both died. They were divided in their death. You know, when I come to think about death, you know, I think about this. They were as different in their death as they were in their life. You know, if you look there at verse number 22, there are two little words that we pick up on in verse number 22 that kind of define, that kind of define how they died. Why, the Bible said in verse number 22, the beggar died and was carried. But then we read a little bit later in verse number 22 that the rich man died and was buried. Now let me tell you something. The difference between the saved and the lost many times on this earth is not very evident. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell a saved man from a lost man. And sometimes it's hard to tell a lost man from a saved man. You know, sad but true, there's a lot of lost people that's got more morals than saved people do. Can I just say what a tragedy that is? When a lost man lives a better life than a saved man, that is indeed a tragedy. But you know, sometimes we kind of, the picture gets muddied down here on this earth. Sometimes it's a little bit confusing as we think about people who are saved and people that are lost. Because sometimes saved people live better moral lives, uh, lost people live better moral lives than saved people do. Sometimes saved people are mean. Sometimes they're carnal. Sometimes they're worldly. I mean, sometimes it becomes awful muddy, uh, the difference between people who are saved and the people who are lost. Oh, I want to tell you when death comes. When death comes and steals the life out of our body, when the icy cold fingers of death slips themselves around our throat, oh, I want to tell you the difference, the division is clearly seen when it comes time to die. In verse number 22, we're told the rich man was buried, and oh, what a burial it must have been. Oh, I'm sure that his carriage was drawn by the, the fanciest of buggy and the, and, the, and the sharpest of horses. I'm sure that it was nothing best but the most expensive casket that a money could buy, that money could buy. I'm sure they'd probably hired some of those professional mourners to come. And all oh, the crying and the taking on that was going on at this funeral. I'm sure the who's who of that day, the mayor, the governor, uh, all the uh, uh, political leaders showed up at the funeral of this rich man. But the Bible simply says he died and he was buried. But I like what the Bible said about the poor man. The Bible said when he died, he was carried. Now I'll tell you something, friend, there's all the difference in the world between being buried and being carried. Let me say it like this. The difference is heaven and hell. You know, one of these days when it's my time to get buried, don't worry, I'm going to get carried. 
And the greatest thing that can ever be said about anybody in this room is this. When the time of your death comes, it's better to be carried than it is to be buried. Yes, sir. All the difference in the world. You know, a lot of people in this walk of life, you may not think that's all that important. You may not think that being saved is, 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 is all that important in this walk of life. You may not think there's a big difference between people who are saved and the people that are lost. You may even think that what I'm up here preaching to you this morning is a bunch of hocus pocus. It's a bunch of abracadabra. It's a bunch of nothing. You wish you hadn't wasted your time in coming to the house of God. But I'm here to tell you, when death comes, someday, you'll wish 10,000 worlds this size and bigger that you'd had another opportunity to hear the old, old story about Jesus and his love. Because they were not only divided by their decision, they were divided in their death. But that leads me to make a third statement from this text, and that's this. They were also divided for their destiny. I mean, you stop and think about it. They started out at the same place, literally the rich man's house. They were both there. And yet, like those two drops of waters, they worked themselves away from each other until death comes and they wind up eternities apart. Now, beginning in verse 23, now we see the difference that Jesus makes. I mean, in life, it may have seemed like there were a lot of unfairness in life. In our day, the terminology we hear a lot in our day is injustices in life. It may have seemed completely unfair that the rich man had so much and the poor man had so little. It may seem completely unfair that the rich man evidently was very healthy uh, and the poor man was very sickly. It may seem all unfair, but now we're on the other side beginning in verse number 23. And we find this. We find the poor man was glorified and the rich man was horrified. We find the poor man entered into the joy of the Lord while the rich man entered into the judgment of the Lord. Can I say it like this? The poor man went from rags to riches and the rich man went from riches to rags. And can I just stop and say this? Bless your heart. Eternity is a whole lot longer than our earthly lives. We're told in verse number 25, if you'll look there, that Lazarus, the poor man, was comforted. Let me tell you what I gleaned from that statement. There was no more sickness. There was no more sores. There was no more hunger. There was no more hurt. There was no more pain. There was no more poverty. There was no more loneliness. There was no more unhappiness. There were no more dogs. There was no more disease. No, sir, he is at home and he is now comforted. But with the rich man, the story winds up oh so different. We simply read there in verse number 23 that the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell. Boy, there's so much we learn about hell from this text. You know, in our day, hell is nothing more largely than a curse word that we use. Uh, it's a figment of some religious person's warped imagination. 
It's not anything. It's just something that people drummed up centuries ago to scare people into church. But friend, I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God, underneath our feet this morning, there is a place that is called hell. And when we read what the Bible says about this place called hell, we come to find out that hell is an awful place. If you look at verse 23, verse 24, verse 25, and verse number 28, he talks about the torments that he's in. Look at verse 23. He, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Verse 24. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy and send Lazarus that he may tip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented. The last phrase of verse number 25. Thou art tormented. Verse 28. This is a place of torment. Every word that he utters is a word of agony. There's no water for the fire. There's no medicine for the pain. There's no relief for the suffering. I mean, think about this forever and ever and ever. The Bible said, Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night. Hell is a place of forever and forever and forever. Friend, I'm here to tell you, there's never an end to an awful place called hell. There's no water for the thirst. There's no medicine for the pain. There's no relief for the suffering. It's over in hell. It's an awful place. But can I tell you the saddest thing about hell to me is not the fire and it's not the suffering and it's not the pain and it's not the agony. But the saddest thing about hell to me is hell is a place where there's no hope. There is no hope. You know, someone once called the word hopeless the saddest word in the English vocabulary. You see, we live in a world that don't know what it is to be without hope. I think about Brother Randy back here and the, the struggles that he has with the ALS. But Brother Randy, there's always hope that somebody will find a cure. I mean, if you're sitting in this building and you have cancer this morning, You've been recently diagnosed or maybe you've been battling for years and you've gone through the chemotherapy and the sickness and the radiation and the hair. You've gone through all of that, but there's still hope that somebody will come up with a cure. If you're sick, there's hope for a cure. If, you, if you've lost your job, there's hope another one will come along. I mean, hopefully the economy will turn around and hopefully, of course, right now there are jobs everywhere on every corner. But if you've lost your job, there's hope that the economy will turn around. Can I even tell you as bad as what I'm about to say? It's still true. If you're sitting on death row awaiting an execution date, there's still hope that some judge may grant you a stay of execution. We don't know what it's like to live in a world without hope. Can I tell you this morning, underneath our feet, there is a place that burns with everlasting fire. And the saddest thing about it is there's no hope. There's no hope. There'll never be the sunset of another day. There'll, there'll never be the sunrise of another morning. There'll never be the embrace of a child, the kiss of a loved one. There'll never be the freshness of a breeze. There'll never be a drop of water to cool your tongue. There's no hope. 
It's over forever and ever and ever. There's no hope that it'll ever get any better. There's no hope there'll ever be a reprieve. There's no hope there'll be a granted stay of execution. There's no hope that things will ever turn around. It is forever and ever and ever. Somebody once inscribed, once said that the words inscribed over the gates of hell are these words, ye who enter here leave all hope behind. Think about that. They were divided for their destiny. Two drops of water started out at the same place and wound up oceans apart. I think about every funeral that we have here at our church when one of our good members dies here at our church and we have their funeral here. One thing I always try to say to a family, there's hope. We have the hope of God's Word that one day Jesus is going to come and that loved one that we're saying goodbye to today. And every time we go to the cemetery, I usually read those verses that say, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which have no hope. I'm telling you, friend, we have hope. I mean, even when we say goodbye to our loved ones, those of us that are saved know there's a hope that a better day is going to come. We're going to be together. And by the way, the word hope in the Bible is not like I hope it don't rain. It's like the guaranteed assurance on, based on the promises of God's Word. We'll be together again someday. But in hell, there's no hope. There's no hope. Could I stop and say this morning, one of the the great debates in our day and our age, you know, that people want to throw up to us all the time is, is you preach a loving God, and I do. And then, but they always say, then if he is such a loving God, how can a loving God send anybody to a place like hell? How can that happen? How can he be a God of love and send people to a place like hell. Well, can I just stop and say this morning that God didn't create hell for humanity. It, was nev it never entered into the mind of God to create a place to punish people. God created a world with perfect people, a perfect world, a perfect place with perfect people. And God never had any concept, any idea of punishing people in hell. In fact, when he created hell, the Bible said that he created it for the devil and his angels. All of those angels that went with Lucifer and his rebellion against God, God created a place to punish those angels. And only a man who dies in full rejection of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, only then and then only will that man wind up in that place that was created to punish angels to begin with that revolted and rebelled against God. You know, really the question that boils down to me is this. Not how can a loving God send a sinner to hell. You know, I get it, man. I get why there's a hell. I mean, you can't turn on the TV anymore without hearing about some kind of a mass shooting or somebody just walks into a crowd. How many times have we had that played for us just this week in Houston and Florida in Chicago, I mean, just people walk in, open up fire on innocent bystanders standing around. Many times they hit and kill little children. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I understand why there's a hell. 
when these little children are snatched out of their parents' arm and sold off into sex slavery and sex trafficking all by, by those with perverted and devious and devil-filled minds. I get it. I understand why there's a hell. The old boy that stands on the street corner and peddles his meth and his marijuana, somebody's going to go over here and get a hold of that, fry their brains, never be right again as long as they live. I understand why there's a hell. When little children are molested by, by people who are, their mind is so deluded and so dirty and perverted that they want to take and molest little children. I get it. I understand why there's a hell. When people are murdered for five bucks or they're shot going down a highway because they made somebody angry and a little child spends the rest of his life without his mama. I get it. I get it. I know why there's a hell. What amazes me is that there's a heaven. That's why. The question, no, 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 no. The question is not how can a loving God send people to hell. The question is how can a holy God let people into heaven? That's the question. How can God, who is so holy and so true and just and pure and sinless, how can he let somebody like you and me come to heaven? That's the real question. And the answer is Jesus. <laughs> the answer is Jesus. God took all of your sin and all of my sin and laid those sins upon his son at a place called Calvary and God punished his son for our sins and God was thereby opening up a way for you and I as sinful human being to one day live in his presence in a perfect place forever and ever and ever. Yes, the real question is how can I love, how can a holy God let sinful people live in his presence? Just to think about God's created a perfect place and then said, you know something? I want you to come up here and live with me. I said this Wednesday, and I said it earlier. Y'all bear with me, those of you that are here for the early service. There are three things about heaven that's going to amaze us. That's going to amaze me. Number one, who is there? Because I'm like you. There's some people I see, and I think, there ain't no way they're going. <laughs> There's no way. They got about as much chance as, a, as a, a gallon of ice cream left in the trunk of your car on a hot August day of getting to heaven. They ain't going. There's no way. And then we get there, and here they come. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Who is there? It's going to be amazing. Who isn't there? I mean, people that I just know is going to be there. I mean, people I got all the confidence in the world, they're going to be there. I'm going to see them. And then we get there, and we search, and they're not there. Who is there? Who isn't there? But the thing that amazes me the most is I'll be there. Because I know me like you don't know me. And you know you like I don't know you. Old J. Vernon McGee used to say, if you knew me like I knew me, you wouldn't want to come hear me preach. But if I knew you like you know you, I wouldn't want you to come and hear me preach. The real question is not how can a loving God send somebody to hell. The real question is how can a holy God allow any of us to come to heaven? That's the question. And the answer is Jesus. 
So what you need today, if you sit here in this service and you've never been saved, or maybe you're sitting here, boy, you have some great doubts about that. Maybe you sit here in the day and, boy, I'm telling you, you've been wrestling with that question. Why don't you today get it settled? The answer is Jesus. Let's bow our head for prayer. Father, I pray now that you'd speak to hearts this morning.